from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here today in Scottsdale, Arizona at the tail end of the GreenBiz 16 conference. On today's edition, highlights from three incredible days of speakers, including Ellen MacArthur on the circular economy, Paul Hawken on bringing carbon back home to earth, and Climate Group's Mark Kenber on the Renewable Energy 100. It's springtime in the desert, this week on 350. It's February 26, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here in Arizona with GreenBiz senior editor, my co-host, Lauren Hepler. Hey there. Glad (laughs) to be here in the desert. Uh, what an incredible few days. It's actually, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, so yesterday, and in, in, <laughs> I don't know how to even talk about it, but that we, it, the, the point of which is that we just, about 20 minutes ago, finished uh, the final, the closing session uh, at Greenville 16 after three days of this, and geez, I mean, what, I don't know, where do we even start? This was such uh, a, a packed morning, noon, and late into the night kind of thing. Yeah, it was. It was kind of a blur. So the main stage was great. You had some real luminaries like Ellen MacArthur and James Hansen and Paul Hawken, which were awesome to hear from. But then all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the breakouts. A lot of reflection on what happened during the Paris climate talks. Um, I was doing stuff on forests, circular economy, really all over the map. But I know you did like approximately 95 interviews. Yeah, well, it's close. I did 13 main stage interviews. As I said. Yeah, 95, whatever. It's close enough. Um, yeah, and it was really from the very beginning, uh, uh, just having these great conversations. And we'll get to some of those clips. We're going to play a bunch of clips in the show uh, this week. And what was interesting are just some of the themes. Like We talked a lot about the circular economy with Ellen MacArthur, obviously, who's uh, the founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and really propagating that the notion of a closed-loop uh, economic system um, more than just about anybody. Uh, really, really inspiring, but also, you know, on the ground, uh, Jim Keene, the CEO of Steelcase, where they're really actually looking to reinvent their business model, not to mention rethink all of their products and services through the lens of, of a circular economy and how that changes, not just what they do and make, but the relationship that they have with their customers. Um, and, oh, my God, I'm just I'm, I'm not drawing a blank, but I have to go back and even look at my notes to even remember. What, what were some of the highlights for you, Lauren? Uh, like you said, circular economy was huge, and that ranged from how do oil prices impact recycling to uh, getting really innovative with ways to for companies to be swapping their what would be trash or um, sort of actually rethink product design. And that's some stuff I'm really interested in, sort of rethinking chemistry. The one time I'm actually interested in chemistry in this context, uh, sort of the material science stuff was really cool. Um, but then also, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm from D.C., so a little bit of the policy wonk stuff I did find interesting. Just uh, James Hansen calling COP21 a fraud and then completely polar opposite views of like Bill Weil from Facebook saying, no, it was kind of brilliant how it was done to sort of get everybody working towards one single North Star goal. Yeah, and I think that, you know, everybody always ha- has an opinion on this. And But there was always there was, you know, so much. Hope and I, as I as I said as I closed out the show just a few minutes ago, 
you know, what really makes this show work is the audience. Um, I mean, we, yeah, we put on a good program and we give people lots of great food and drink and, and really create an environment. I mean, you know, heck, it's uh, it's February in, in Phoenix and given what's been going on weather-wise in the Midwest and this week in the Northeast, you know, that's alone that alone makes it <laughs> worth a lot of people's while. But the audience really brings it. Uh, and and, and it's, it's not just to sit and listen. There is so much um, acceptance. I had a uh, interesting conversation with a... Uh, with uh, some oil company people who were, were there, and and I won't name it because, but they said, you know, it was our first time here, a great conference, blah blah. Thank you very much. But what you know, we really appreciated how accepted and we were. Um, and and it occurred to me, I think that's a really great statement about the community. No one's judging, you know, no one's saying how dare you come to a sustainability conference because you're an oil company or a car company or you make any certain product or service. And it, it really does. Um, uh, make it, uh, you know, because we're all working in the same direction. We're all working for the same goals. We're all struggling with the same kinds of challenges. And and I think really people really appreciate the fact that, you know, it's a cliche to say, but we're all in this together. Yeah, and I would be re- remiss not to add that we also had a really active virtual audience this week, which was cool. Um, and the archived version, by the way, of all the main stage events are going to be archived on our site. Um, it'll, we'll link to it in this week's podcast story. But um, it, it was really cool. To, we had people from like Brazil, Nigeria, Spain. So it really added to questions that I never would have thought to ask were, were coming in uh, through Twitter and through the online chat, which was really cool. Yeah, I don't think people appreciate that. In addition to the, we actually integrate the two events, uh, you know, both the online event and the in the room event or whatever. I don't even know what to call it anymore. <laughs> the, the not live event. They're both live. But uh, <laughs> we've got uh, you, Lauren, and 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 our colleague Elaine Shea, uh, sitting there at sort of an anchor booth. Uh, we call it Green Biz Sidebar, uh, working with the uh, the uh, the online audience and chatting with them and and fielding their questions, which then when when we're on stage and moderating speakers, we turn to you, Lauren, and ask. Uh, you know who are the questions and the questions we don't know at that moment whether it's from in the room or or out out there in you know Nigeria or somewhere mm-hmm. and uh, and that's kind of cool because it blends the real world uh, of, of here and now visceral world in the room with the, the cyber world and it's all one big happy family Let's begin with uh, talking about the circular economy. So Ellen MacArthur, uh, actually known in Britain as Dame Ellen MacArthur or Dom Ellen, she really is the grand dame of, of the circular economy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not why she's called that, but uh, she is really remarkable in that is, is she sort of just in the last uh, five years, but particularly the last couple of years, kind of created this space and brought it to a much bigger audience than a fairly small circle of friends that were talking about cradle to cradle and and some of the related concepts here. 
um, and had a chance to, to to sit down with her for on the main stage for about 20 minutes to talk about what she's doing. What struck you, Lauren? Some of the interesting stuff was just how many people are actively jumping into this circular economy stuff now, uh, not sort of like a hippie thing like, oh, hey, let me make an upside gold product out of the fabric you don't want or whatever. We're talking about Fortune 500 companies, the World Economic Forum. It was crazy when she would just rattle off the list of like reports that are out there and I think uh, McKinsey just did a big thing on plastic in the circular economy uh, but groups that are working towards this it seems like it's really gaining momentum yeah well let's hear a little bit about what she had to say there are challenges and you know we have many conversations with businesses around those challenges I think one of well this makes me think of two elements one is you know at the moment when you design a product and this is not the case for all companies, but certainly a, a large majority of companies, that product's not designed to fit within a system. So you design a product to do the job. It'll do that job brilliantly for the design life of the product. And then at the end, it gets remanufactured perhaps a little bit. Some of the material gets recovered, but it was never designed to fit within a system. So the first part is, you know, if you have technology with a fast churn rate, for example, you know, the, the glass partitions may be 10 or 20 years, but, you know, information technology, a smartphone, that's, that's quite fast churn rate. Actually, if you design to fit within a system and you can recover that product and you can get the materials out, then that's kind of okay. You know, you're building for a system rather than keeping selling, selling, selling in that very linear system where the materials, not all, but, but a vast majority, fall off the end. So it's the balance between the two, the design and also the system within which you, 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 know, you, you take your product into the marketplace. Let's talk about plastic because I think that's just a really interesting and massive challenge in the circular economy of how do you make it, what do you do with it. You put out a report recently uh, called The New Plastic Economy, I think. That's um, And you had this remarkable statistic that, I can't remember, was it 2050 or by some year, that there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. It's a frightening thing. But, but obviously, you know, citing the need or underscoring the need for a, a circular model here, uh, how do you think about plastics differently mm-hmm. and, and that whole value chain and the, all the products and packaging that that goes into? That's really... Your massive. comment on how do you think about plastics differently is actually really key because you know, if you think about I know, providing an MRI or a CT scanner as a service, that's actually quite easy. Most companies could do that fairly easily. You know, Philips is working on that now. You provide a service, you remanufacture, you recover your materials. You've kind of created that system. But when it comes to plastic packaging, which would be, you know, which is 78 million tons of a 300 million ton plastic industry today, um, that's incredibly fast use. It, it's, it's never used for long. It's incredibly high volume, very low value. And, you know, we often talk about recycling plastics and, you know, the ability to recycle plastics. But the statistics after 40 years of trying are, are pretty poor. Right. We only recover globally 14% of plastic packaging. We lose 4% of that during the sorting process. We recycle 10%, but 8% of that gets downcycled, so eventually falls out of the bottom of the chain. And only 2% is cycled to the same value. So after 40 years of trying, the stats are, are So how do we poor. change that? And, and this was the question that we asked. And, and actually, that plastics report came from a, a question that, that we asked at the foundation was, you know, if we had a collaboration between the World Economic Forum, the foundation and McKinsey, as, as we have, called Project Mainstream, what could we do to actually really tackle some of the circular challenges within the economy, you know, those that are hard to tackle, like plastics? And we felt that actually even the biggest you know, retailer in the world or the biggest manufacturer of plastics in the world, you, you can't solve this because 
the value chain is so complex and a product could be made in the States and could end up in Asia or it could be made in the UK and end up in, in somewhere else in Europe. It's, it's incredibly fragmented. You know, even today we lose 32% of plastics predominantly into the environment or the ocean. So there's this massive loss of materials that could be picked up in one territory and not in another, but, but not specifically made for a territory or a collection system. So it's very complex. And we decided that actually the only way to really try and solve this is to get everyone together in a value chain. And we've been working now for two years, which led to the launch of the, the New Plastics Economy Report. With multiple companies, uh, we've uh, worked with over 140 different organizations, um, some very, very closely on this, um, also um, you know, educational establishments, universities, to try and look, and, and McKinsey, of course, for the analysis, to look at the chain of plastics, to actually put together a picture of what a global plastics materials flow looks like, which hadn't really been done before. And then to really put together a rationale and, and five points that we want to carry out through the project of the new plastics economy over the next three years. And the goal is to try to mobilize that same funding that we've seen within Europe on circular economy for the plastics question and to put together design principles so that when you design for an innovative type of plastic, for example, to do a specific job, it's within a framework that can then either be recovered and revalorized or it's, it's something which is bio-benign. So if it ends up within the environment, it would just deconstruct, you know, deconstruct. I imagine if we get this right, that there's a significant economic opportunity here uh, for companies and value chains, uh, not just in efficiency, and, but I mean, is that... How do you quantify that, or how do you articulate that opportunity? Well, we know from the study that we lose between 80 and 120 billion US dollars worth of, of value of plastic every year. So that we're, you know, losing, that we're losing that value. The, the raw material is lost. I mean, plastics is one of the hardest ones for sure because it's so complex, but there is a huge amount of value that's lost. We also looked at the externalities of the industry and actually the entire profit pool of the plastics packaging industry is not big enough to cover the externalities. So there are some big questions around plastics. I think also from a brand perspective, you know, if you put your brand on a piece of plastic, you know, if you think about the plastics industry, every single piece of plastic that hasn't been incinerated is still here today. It's either in the ocean or it's been landfilled or some of it would have been recycled into more plastic, but it, it's still here. We've, some of it's in our bodies. Some of it's in our bodies, some of it's microplastics in the ocean. It, it's, it really is everywhere. And, and if your brand is on that and that's something, you know, looking longer term, actually nobody wants this to be the case. You know, all the, we've worked with massive retailers in the plastics project. Everyone's on board with this. Everyone knows there is a, you know, there is, we have a broken system when it comes to plastics. So besides the circular economy, another big theme was just renewables. How do they scale up? How do companies really ramp up their use of that? And uh, Mark Kenberg, a great friend of ours uh, from the Climate Group in, in London, uh, was on stage with our colleague, senior writer, Heather Clancy. Uh, and what he's really doing, in, in, in the same way that Ellen MacArthur is, has, has aggregated companies for the Circular Economy 100, Mark has created the Renewable Energy 100. I guess uh, 100 Popular is a magic number, number this year. <laughs> um, and uh, he's really trying to... Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we heard coming out of COP is that, you know, well, what do companies do now? Well, it's all about implementation, and that's where RE100 comes in. It was interesting to hear uh, executives that were in the room, uh, even in breakout sessions after the main stage from companies like Microsoft and Facebook, talking about how in some way, and in a lot of ways, it's really good that companies are breaking out of incrementalism and setting really ambitious goals, like going 100% renewable. But there's not really a blueprint for how to do that, especially when you have these crazy disparities. 
securities and renewable energy law. So they were talking about, like, if you want a data center powered by wind in one place, cool, you can do that in Texas pretty easily. And a lot of other places, not so much. And that's really indicative of this whole sustainable business space and, and why events like Green Biz 16 really, uh, I think, are, are, have become so popular and are, and are so valued by the community because every company, it seems, is inventing the same wheel. They're all going down a very similar path, trying to figure things out, and they're doing it on their own. And there's just not enough shared knowledge and wisdom and experience or blueprints about how to do that. But I think that's, again, part of the value of of organizations like RE100. Yeah, let's kick it to Mark for a taste of what companies are confronting now. So businesses have to do this by and large because it's going to make them or save them money. So we did, as I mentioned, we'd surveyed the RE100 companies earlier this year. There are a variety of reasons, but in several cases, one of the core reasons was one, that they believed that renewable energy or renewable power would be cheaper over the medium and longer term. Two, that they would save money from avoiding the risks of energy price volatility. And those were the arguments that convinced their CFOs. Then if you can add brand value, you're gonna attract new markets, you're gonna be able to drive uh, cost savings down your supply chain, that helps too. But those first two, those were core determinants of the decision. It's not momentum that's lost at Paris. In the renewables industry, and if you, I mean, if you speak to friends and colleagues in, in the renewables industry, they are very wary about policy and policy incentives. Now, obviously, uh, people here celebrated when production tax credits were renewed. It, it's a driver in the short term. But I think very few of the RE100 companies are making their investments in renewables contingent on policy. They've seen what's happened just recently in my country, in the UK, where um, the subsidy's been reduced by nearly 85% almost overnight. They saw retroactive removal of support in Spain several years ago. Uh, You can't rely on that. Mm -hmm. And so they're making uh, business decisions, investment decisions based on what they see over the short, medium, and long term is this is going to be in terms of the, how much they pay for electricity. Now, many of the companies that we work with have made commitments across the whole world. Right. And there are regions where it is more difficult to, to invest, to get, to get renewable power. So the companies we're working with in China are having to engage with NDRC, with the energy ministries, with local governments to create policy frameworks. And that's probably, I think, now the biggest opportunity for all the companies here and others, is we're still in a fairly undeveloped landscape in terms of policy supporting energy procurement and particularly renewables. And so rather than just standing on a platform and calling for general policy, here's an opportunity to shape policy that supports something that is going to increasingly be part of core business. Another highlight for me was a few of the CEO interviews on the main stage. And Joel, you talked uh, today to the head of JLL, a huge real estate services firm. But uh, yesterday it was Steelcase. Jim Keene, uh, CEO of Steelcase. Now, I- I've long admired Steelcase. They're, of course, uh, office furniture and systems. and, and in, But uh, that's sort of the old school definition. They're now much more, I don't even know how they describe it, but it's about office environments in general, but also how the changing nature of work, because we all know how much work has changed with, with telework and and hoteling and and just the changing nature of, of companies to their employees. And uh, But what uh, Steelcase has been doing is really visionary, because they're starting to say, well, how do we marry that real-world change of our customers with the real-world change in the of, of the circular economy? You know, back to that again. Of how do we create products that 
uh, and this is where the win-win comes in, that I just love this concept, to create products that we can think about not just a one-time use, but multiple-time use, and, and, and as companies change, as their needs change, and maybe it doesn't go back from a, a table to another table, it goes back to a wall or part of a chair or some co other kind of space, and how do we design products for that kind of multi-long-term use? And how do we change the relationship with customers so that it's not just about let you know take the furniture, sell you furniture, or lease you furniture, or get you furniture till you don't need it anymore? And thank you very much. But it's a longer-term, years, maybe decades, or, or intergenerational relationship, which is what the uh, the circular economy is all about: is keeping the molecules in place. So, I mean, I mean Jim was really thoughtful. We can't play the whole clip, but but we'll play a, a good taste of what uh, what he had to say. Today, companies are changing much more quickly, and so the nature of work, the processes are changing, the culture is changing. Uh, new millennials are entering the workforce, and the way they work is changing in fundamental ways. Yeah. One of the things clients are concerned about is what if the furniture outlasts our need for it to be used the way we're imagining using it right now? Uh, should we buy furniture that has a shorter life cycle as a result? Well, that's a terrible sustainability idea, right? So it's an interesting question to hold in your mind. How might you do both? How could you actually create furniture that could adapt more quickly to changes in the way people work and still achieve even higher levels of longevity so you don't have to throw it away? It stays in its intended use for longer. Mm -hmm. What role do we play in all that? So uh, one way of addressing that is to think about furniture as being smart. Uh, as the Internet of Things makes its way into the built environment, the furniture becomes more aware of how it's being used and how that use may change. So it makes it easier for people managing space to see which parts of the facility are in, in high use, which is a good thing, and which are falling into disuse, and how might you redeploy that furniture using design thinking. Uh, to better match the way the, the work is changing, to meet some of the new needs that are emerging. And again, 20 years ago, we might never have thought of that as being part of our business. And is that just embedding intelligence in these things, that inter Internet of Things, is, these are more, yet more things that have intelligence? Yeah, so the sensors are the easy part. The algorithms that make sense of it, that's the hard part. Uh, because you can identify use, but you don't really know why. So to get to the why, it takes a combination of data-based algorithms and human intervention. Uh, to come together to try to understand human behavior. And Again, so, this is a furniture company. I mean, this is, this is where, in order to think about growth, you have to think about that whole circle. And so if you get it right, uh, you're anticipating the customer's needs even before they, they know what they are. Yeah, and we get smarter, too, about the kinds of furniture that people might need that hasn't been invented yet. Uh, so that feeds back. That knowledge that we generate by working with clients feeds back then into our own product development cycle so we can create products that are smarter to begin with. I love the loop of, of innovation begetting sustainability, begetting innovation, begetting, you know, I think that's, that's one, you know, we often talk about, you know, the, the innovation that leads to sustainability, but I like that closing the loop, if you will, about that bringing yet more in, innovative ideas. H how does this change? You, you've been with the company for a long time, but you've only been the CEO for a year? Two years. Two years. Yeah. yeah. Um, how has this changed the way that pardon the expression, that you CEO. How, how does this change leadership if you're thinking about products, value propositions, uh, customer relationships, product cycles in a whole different way? Does it? Well, it does. You know, I, I think about this every now and then. We are a 103-year-old company, and I'm the ninth CEO. And uh, we've reinvented ourselves a number of times. So the, the company today is very different than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And, and really, every CEO who's had this role has had to find that way to reinvent the company. So that's, that's one thing that's always been true and continues to be true. Uh, in terms of changing how 
my CEO, uh, it really helped me a lot to have people like Angela Nahikian and a whole team of really smart people inside Steelcase who go deep on these topics. Uh, when I talk to other CEOs about this, I, I tell them about this journey because by going deep and really understanding the details, by making some uh, unpopular decisions early on, uh, we had, for example, we had uh, adopted Cradle to Cradle, but it's, it's hard and it's long and it's slow. And we got our first product out and we took a big breath and thought, great, we only have like a thousand more to go. <laughs> and then we had a few products and we were so proud of ourselves because we were able to build like this integrated work environment in our showroom one year and go, that, all that product there is cradle to cradle. And then don't mention all this other product over here. <laughs> and so the, we made this crazy challenge to say, what if next year at the show, we only allowed product to be at the show that was cradle to cradle certified or was on its way to being cradle to cradle certified. So every product manager in the company suddenly heard that challenge and they thought, he's kidding, right? I mean, there's no way that we're going to achieve that. So you, you do learn a little bit by engaging at that level. And we, we made it, by the way. So there's a happy ending to that story. Uh, but, and, and people tried to talk me out of it. And they told me I was naive, and I was, and uh, that it would cost too much, and it did. Um, <laughs> and that it was a bad idea, and it wasn't. It wasn't a bad idea, despite all those other things, because it built a competency. Yeah. It built competency in a broader way than just a few people talking about sustainability all the time. All of a sudden, we all had to understand it. And I learned something important as CEO about when's that moment when you've got to do that thing that's unpopular. So we like to end each day at GreenBiz events with just uh, something that'll keep you thinking. And we did that uh, every day, I think. But on, on Wednesday, we had a conversation with Paul Hawken. And on Thursday, to close out the event, we had a conversation with James Hansen, Jim Hansen, the former uh, NASA scientist, uh, controversial activist, um, you know, working and talking about climate since the 1980s, testified in 1988 to Congress about, you know, climate change is here, it's real, it's now. Um, and um, uh, so it was just really interesting to hear the two very different perspectives. Yeah, I, I will say one thing I was unaware of, I think I had read this at some point, but the fact that Jim Hansen, along with his granddaughter Sophie, are in the midst of a lawsuit against the U.S. government for inaction on climate change and how that will affect future generations, that's quite a statement to make. It is, and that seems to be one of the things that, and a carbon tax, even though it's what's it called, fee and dividend. I don't yes. really care for either term that much, but <laughs> that's just my preference. So we're, we're going to play an extended clip of Jim Hansen, and we'll get to sort of the end when, you know, he's a little nervous about him as the final speaker because he's, you know, he's he's kind of, he's pretty scary in terms of his view on, on things, and we didn't really want to leave people um, you know, depressed at the end of this great three days in the sunshine with great inspiring speakers and ideas. So let's play an extended clip of Jim Hansen because he had some really interesting things to say. We're at this sort of moment now in history. We've come out of this climate change conference uh, in Paris um, and uh, arguably, you know, we've, we've talked about already and that, that if ever there was a catalytic moment in the arena of corporate uh, approaches to uh, climate change, that that was sort of a moment in time. But what do you think? Where are we now 
uh, you know, two months after Paris, going into uh, the political season and well into it. And where, where is this conversation now in terms of where we should be? Yeah, well, let me first make a comment about Pyrrhus. Um, I described it as a fraud mm. because, uh, you know, it, all it amounted to was the countries all saying, uh, yeah, this climate problem is a real problem. But they didn't do anything about it other than say, well, we should probably try harder. And they even, you know, the science has become clear that the dangerous level of global warming is much lower than had been anticipated uh, years ago. And so they decided to say, well, instead of, instead of having a goal of keeping global warming relative to pre-industrial less than two degrees Celsius, let's say we'll try to get it one and a half degrees Celsius. Well, so that was their aspirational goal, knowing that their policies would in no way result in such a result. So it's as if someone who realized he's overweight and said, well, I have a goal to reduce, to lose 50 pounds. And now uh, I realized I've actually not been reaching my goal, so I'm going to change my goal. I'm going to lose 60 pounds, and to celebrate that, I'm going to go out and have a pizza and eat a gallon of ice cream. Yeah, but with a diet cola, so. so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so as long, you know, the fundamental fact is that as long as fossil fuels are the cheapest energy, we'll just keep burning them. And, and we're burning them faster and faster. And, we, and this Paris Accord did nothing to address that issue. So the, the fact that you know, they stood up and pretended they had done something, that's nonsense. So that's on the government side, which is arguably, you know, non, I mean, it's the most important piece of this in terms of world leadership. But how about in the private sector? Do you see that there's been a shift there, or do you think that it's all talk, no action? Uh, the potential in the private sector is there. And you know, private sector is figuring out ways to do things better. And that's a necessary step, but it's completely ineffectual if it's not accompanied by policies. Because some of the people and companies will save energy and use less fossil fuels. That will reduce the demand for the fuel, make it even cheaper, and somebody else will burn it. And that's exactly what's happening. You know, we'll say, oh, we're using less coal in the United States. Well, now we're exporting more. It's being burned someplace else. The total global emissions have continued to accelerate. So you talk about policy, uh, needs, for, needs for policies. The policy that you've been uh, advocating and, and activists uh, around is, is a carbon tax. Um, talk about what you see as needed. Yeah, I, I don't actually say carbon tax because I know very well that the public will not accept a tax. The T word, yeah. You know, Al Gore tried to get a five cent a gallon tax and he could not get that. Um, what we have to do is make the price of fossil fuels honest so that it includes its so-called externalities, the effect uh, air pollution and water pollution and climate change all have substantial and the climate cost is a growing cost. It's going to be even much higher uh, in the lifetime of our children. 
So we need to add that to the price of fossil fuels, but you can't do it as a tax. It needs to be done, it should be done in a revenue neutral way. And furthermore, the way in which you do revenue neutrality is also important. So what I argue is the money should be collected at the source, very easy to do, the, the domestic mine and the port of entry. Small number of places, you just, it's single number, just a dollars per uh, ton of carbon. Collect that from the fossil fuel companies and give it to the public, an equal amount to all legal residents of the country. That way the person who does better than average in limiting their fossil fuel use will make money. And with the present distribution of energy use, uh, about two-thirds of the people would, would make money. But if they want to stay on the positive side of that ledger, they have to pay attention to their uh, carbon footprint. And it's pretty easy to do. At the pump, it's very obvious, but products you buy off the shelf, some of them use more fossil fuels than others, but that will begin to be reflected in their price, so they don't even have to think about it. Uh, but that's the way in which that doing that actually is very beneficial to the economy. An economy is most efficient if prices are honest. And uh, what economic studies have showed that if you had a $10 a, a, a ton carbon fee and going up $10 a ton each year, after 10 years, $100 a ton, that uh, is a dollar a gallon. So it's going to be noticed uh, by the public, but it would, with our present energy use in the U.S., it's $600 billion. It's $2,000 for every legal resident of the country. So uh, you can readily pay for that, uh, but actually after 10 years, that incentive will reduce fossil fuel emissions 30%, much faster than the cap-and-trade plan which would have reduced emissions 17%, but half of that would be hokey offsets, not real reductions. Right. So this is the efficient way to do it, and it actually spurs the economy. It increases GNP. So it's not costly. So the argument that, oh, we can't deal with climate because it would cost too much, that's nonsense. It's costing more not to deal with it. So we have to get... Uh, people to understand this. And it's very hard to get people to understand when you have the fossil fuel industry communicating with the public via, via for example, this I am uh, energy voter. You know, it makes it sound like they're doing everything good for us by giving us more energy and making us more energy independent. People have to understand that it's not in our best interest to do that. It's only... So, so, so if it's not a carbon tax... What do you call it? So I call it a fee and dividend. Fee and dividend. And there now, there's an organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, right. which now has 265 uh, chapters in the United States. And their sole objective is to, uh, to advocate for this fee and dividend and try to educate politicians. So they've met with every representative in the Senate and House, and they go back every year. They've been growing rapidly over the last three or four years. And what's your relationship to CCL? Uh, well, they adopted the, the proposition that I made for fee and dividend. Uh, after they, the, the leader had previously been advocating cap and trade and still, until he read uh, what I had written and then said, oh, this makes much more sense. He couldn't explain cap and trade. Cap and trade is designed by big banks. 
who have to be involved if you have a trade scheme because, uh, and, and prices will fluctuate and they make money. Sure. Uh, and every dollar comes out of the public's hide. It, it's, it adds no value. It actually is worse to have prices fluctuating. The public needs to know and entrepreneurs need to know that carbon will keep going up uh, in price. Oh, yeah, so ending there on a little bit of a downer note. Well, yeah, I know, but it was, this was now the end of the conference, and I did not want to leave everybody, you know, uh, we'll be handing out razor blades at the door. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I asked Paul Halkin, uh, who has uh, is author, entrepreneur, he runs something called Project Drawdown, which we've written about in the past, and uh, we talked about uh, with him on stage, um, you know, had some really interesting things to say, of all things, about hope. You know, I'm not hopeful. Um. <laughs> okay, <laughs> have a safe trip home, everyone. Thanks. I have uh, one more thing to say, uh, because hope is a mask of fear. Hope? There's no hope unless you have fear. fear. And what I want us to be is fearless and be human beings and know that we can do it. And heck, hope, screw that. We want to be fearless and smart and brilliant, and we are, and I just say, let's do it, instead of being hopeful, which is kind of a passive position. We are mapping, measuring, and modeling the 100 most substantive solutions to climate change that exist, that we're doing. We know how to do it. We have metrics. We have the science. We have the economics. And then what we do with those solutions, because they're all scaling, they all exist, is we then model what would happen over 30 years if they continue to scale at a rigorous but reasonable rate to see if, in fact, humanity can achieve drawdown in our lifetime. And I can tell you tentatively the answer is yes, within 27 years. So I have to admit, as a journalist, I always kind of get the heebie-jeebies when someone starts talking about the term storytelling because it just gives me like flashbacks to terrible pitches over the years. And, but and you don't want to give journalists the heebie-jeebies. That's just not not a captain. <laughs> no, but but there were two speakers this week that really stood out to me. Um, one was Sanjun from conservation international and the other was solitaire townsend from futera um and they're both doing a lot of really interesting work and sort of rethinking how we talk about climate and sustainability sort of getting away from a lot of these themes about the green guilt and all of that and heebie-jeebies notwithstanding i mean storytelling is really a critical part of this because you know that's how we learn i mean that's how we all but in in sustainability in particular Storytelling takes on its own importance because it's 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 you know as we all know it's it's not just about technical scientific geeky stuff and it's not just about doing the right thing and and sort of the uh, you know just the touchy feely stuff it, it's it's you got to blend those two things because if you go too far in each direction it's either like you know 
get out of here. I don't understand this stuff. Or, wow, that's just sort of California woo-woo. And, and so storytelling is how we blend you know, facts and, and emotion and head and heart. And, and I think what was interesting is we had some real professionals here, Conservation International, uh, Sanjan, who is just uh, a, both a scientist and a marketing guy, which is a really interesting combination, talking about um, – a uh, number of ways that they reach people, including through this Nature Speaks video series, which we'll, we'll link to that on, on the website. Um, but what, what do you think about uh, Solitaire Towns and Solly as we know her? Yeah, Solly was great. Uh, we also interviewed her on Sidebar during a break. So we got to hear a lot about the research that she's doing to sort of finally have some definitive data on what works and what doesn't for real companies. So they're working with like Walmart and McDonald's and big players to do A-B testing. Does this work better or does this work better? So we're not just sort of guessing about like, oh, that green leaf label will work, but this one won't. The number one rule is what's in it for your audience, not what's in it for you. That's ego PR. When you communicate sustainability to try to make your company look better, it's actually going to bomb. It's going to go the other way. Everyone hates it when you do that ego PR. Think about what's in it for my audience. What functional, emotional, or social benefit does my audience receive from what I'm asking or offering them? And if you can find out a way that people can feel better, they can get better value, they can get better products, or they can get a sense of belonging, that's going to transform how you communicate. It's about being essentially high emotional intelligence around how we communicate rather than essentially high reputational desire from companies themselves. So um, a great example is recycling. So a lot of companies in here are trying to encourage their staff or their consumers to recycle. Consumer take back, H&M does it in store, etc. And the guilt message of feeling bad about what you throw away has got very limited traction. Um, so what we worked with McDonald's on was trying to engage kids so children understand recycling. It's one of the few pro-social behaviors that kids can do. Mm. And it's a teachable moment with your children around recycling. That's an actual value for people. A teachable moment with their kids is something which has got a functional and emotional value to parents. Whereas recycling has very few value value for people otherwise, apart from a guilt offset. So trying to think really creatively about where's the value for people in doing these behaviors. Well, that's our 350 podcast from uh, Greenbiz 16 in Scottsdale, Arizona. So speaking of storytelling, there's going to be a lot more uh, stories that we're going to be telling about the event in, through the videos coming up. Uh, Lauren, you had a great piece this week on, on climate. Uh, that was a uh, conversation here. And we'll see a lot more coverage here. And, of course, as always, we can link to a lot of the organizations, stories, events, and things that we talked about. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer back home in Oakland, California, Saria Melconian. And, and I really want to give a shout out here to the entire Green Biz team. I mean, we have this fabulous team, uh, you know, Ellie Beekner, who runs uh, the program and, and everybody uh, behind her and with her linking arms. Everybody steps up so beautifully for these events. And the, the comments we got from uh, the audience just dozens and dozens of people come up and say we have the best team and the, the, this event was flawless and I have to say it really was so I just a big shout out to the green biz team including you Lauren working on sidebar
Yay, GreenBiz team. <laughs> um, of course, you can subscribe to GreenBiz 350 all through the usual channels like uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and find it every Friday morning on GreenBiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, GreenBuzz. Go online to subscribe to that if you're not already getting it. Uh, as always, send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments to 350 at GreenBiz.com. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower here in Scottsdale, Arizona. We'll be back at 350 Franklin Gobble Plaza next week in Oakland, California. Until next time, have a great day.